0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Father, we give you thanks for the new mercies that you bestow on us this morning. God, I ask that you would take my lips and speak through them, what your servants would hear. I ask that you would take our minds and help us to focus them on you. Would you grab a hold of our hearts, set them ablaze for you in a really refreshing way this morning? And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated, get comfy. Good morning. Um, If we have not met before, my name is JD Meter, and I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Church of the Redeemer. I'm the director of the Greensboro Fellows, which there, there they are, the best people I know. Yeah, come on. I'm going to be honest. They're all here this morning. The 9 a.m. got a little bit more excited about you guys, so that's fine. No, no problem. Maybe you should shower before coming to church. Just kidding. Just kidding. You look great. Um, I, that was distracting. All right. So, um, yeah, uh, I would just say this, too, that about one year ago to the day, my family and I, we moved from Charleston, South Carolina, up here um, to Greensboro. And it was right around this time that we were like, there's an Anglican church, let's go check it out. And we came here to Church of the Redeemer. And it's been an amazing uh, season of life. And we just give great thanks. One of the core values of this church is radical hospitality. And I think a lot of us that are in the room today have really experienced that. So for all of you that make that a part of the culture and the ethos of what God's doing here at Redeemer, on behalf of my family, I just want to thank you. It's really been a beautiful season. Speaking of seasons, we are in the second Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany, as Jared referenced, is um, really kind of a dream when you're preaching because the subject is the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus and what he's like. And, um, and this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. More specifically, we're really going to look at our, our gospel reading, which talks about the introduction of Jesus, specifically. In the Gospel of John. Just for a bit of background on this, the Gospel of John opens a little bit differently than the other Gospels. He doesn't include any sort of birth story. So instead, he writes this prologue, um, and then we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth, not introduced to him as a baby. We're introduced to him as he begins his ministry. He's probably around 30 years old. What's kind of interesting is that while well, the author, John, this is, there's gonna be a couple Johns here. Okay, you've got John the author, John A, John son, son of Zebedee, and then John the Baptist, John B, right? That's who's gonna be speaking in our passage. John son of Zebedee, the author, he refers to Jesus by his name. But what's interesting is that the people or the characters that Jesus interacts with um, in this passage and beyond, they, they actually don't. They do not call him Jesus to his face. Instead, we're introduced to the person and the character of Jesus Christ in this gospel by the descriptions and other names used by the people that interact and speak with Jesus. And this might seem a bit odd in terms of descriptions and how you'd go about that. I find it, um, I kind of appreciate it. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you just can't seem to find the right words to describe something but it can be a bit frustrating trying to explain something you understand to somebody who maybe doesn't, right? (laughs) And so a silly example of this. I have an amazing wife. Her name is Catherine. She is smarter and more attractive and all the things. Um, She's also big into researching things. So anytime we're going to buy something, maybe it's something that feels big. You're here. That's her. (laughs) I didn't know which service. Love you. I'm going to be in trouble. She's, she, she likes to research, right? And so big things, little things, whatever it looks like. She doesn't play games when it comes to purchasing things. And she is the queen of Facebook Marketplace. And we praise God for that. We have two children. And our son, Jack, He's actually nine months old today. He's getting a little bit bigger. And so we need to make a change in our stroller game. And I don't know. I know that there's a lot of young families in this church. Again, I praise God for that. Um, if you are somebody who doesn't do a lot of research in that subject, they might as well be named in Mandarin. Like the, the names for, so Catherine, again, she knows what she's talking about with these strollers. We sit down on the couch maybe a week ago and it's, she's just throwing around these phrases that doesn't make any sense. Like I, I don't know about our, our upper vista because I've also done a lot of reading and love the way the Nuna Pippa, if we want to spend a little bit more money, we could always get an Inglisina quid. And and these are different strollers. And there are people in the room shaking their heads because you live, I feel so hurt. And I'm like, do they have wheels? Because I, I was thinking we'd stroll, push, yeah. And I, I could see it on her face, and she's so sweet and so patient. And, I, and it is a silly example. But as she's trying to describe this, I'm like, you're stroller, stroller, stroller. And I, in a much more serious way, can you just imagine if you're John, son of Zebedee, and you're tasked with having to describe the one who is in himself fully indescribable. What ways would you go about doing that? And his creativity is to do that. Instead of just saying Jesus is blank, he uses different people's descriptions and names for that. And that's what we'll look at this morning. In this passage, he actually does that four times. Um, we're going to look at the first predominantly this morning. Um, and so we're, if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to John chapter one. We're predominantly going to be in verse 29. Just a little bit of context before that. I mentioned we're going to talk about John the Baptist. He's going to be the one speaking here describing Jesus of Nazareth. And um, just before this, we're introduced to John. And John has just uh, finished up being questioned by priests and Levites who've come from Jerusalem. John has developed a reputation and quite a following. He's become a well-known figure. He's preaching a message that's resonating with a lot of people, but it's fairly controversial. And so these folks come and they ask him, are you the Christ? John the Baptist denies that, And they ask her, well, are you then another coming of Elijah? He denies that too. And finally they ask him, Are you the prophet? This may be unclear in your Bible, but that is probably a reference to Moses. If he's another coming of, of Moses, John denies that as well. So finally, in their frustration, they ask him, What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist gets quite clear with this. He says that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He goes on to say this, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. If you're not familiar with the sandals and how this culture might operate, to untie one's sandal was the lowest of the low. It's one of the reasons so profound that Jesus washed the disciples' feet To a servant in that culture, it was thought to be beneath them to untie one's sandal. So John has quite a following. There are recordings that some of his followers were as far away as Ephesus. He is a very large political and religious figure, okay? And in this moment, this fairly well-known guy is going, I am below a servant to the one who is coming after me. And so if you are a reader or a listener of the Gospel of John, and initially these would all be read together at one time, What John, our author, is doing is bringing you to the edge of your seat. Who is this figure that even John the Baptist is not worthy to untie his sandals? And that's when we get to the verse we're going to camp out in for a bit, verse 29. So that happens. He gets questioned. And then the next day, he, that's John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world and the phrase that that maybe your eyes naturally jump to is one that you've probably heard many times the lamb of God there are many songs about them I think over Christmas alone anecdotally I heard a dozen Christmas songs that referred to Jesus as a lamb if you have the boldness to type in lamb of God on Spotify There are hundreds of songs, and even a band, this is not a recommendation, I have not listened to them, but they are called Lamb of God. So it is a well-known phrase in our Christian culture, but this is a new term in the first century. This phrase, Lamb of God, has not been used before in this way. And, And I just have to ask myself, I just have to wonder, why did John the Baptist choose to use something brand new in this? I I can't imagine that he's doing this for himself. There's the thought maybe he's being poetic and he sees Jesus and whispers him to himself. I, I find that to be unlikely. And that's because he says, behold, I've already mentioned you, he's a big figure. He has many followers around him. And as he's going about, he sees Jesus, stops everything, behold, or another way to translate it, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So saying this, John the Baptist says this with the purpose of being heard, okay? He wants people to hear this, which leads us to another question. If you are the one hearing, if you are a Jew in the first century Greco-Roman world, and John the Baptist is identifying somebody, behold, look, the Lamb of God, what is being communicated to you? What are the things that are popping immediately into your brain? According to the scholars that I've read, predominantly on this subject, it's N.T. Wright. He calls this a combining of images from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Predominantly, there's two passages that are immediately going to jump right into these people's heads as soon as they hear, behold, the Lamb of God. The first one, this is a reference to the suffering servant. If you're not familiar with that, it's in Isaiah 53. Specifically, in terms of the Lamb, it's verse seven, and it says this. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This passage goes on to describe what John is identifying this Jesus, this Lamb of God, and in other ways too. It says that he would be despised, says that he would be rejected, describes him as the man of sorrows, that he'd be well acquainted with grief that he'd be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In one commentary I read by Matthew Henry, it said the following, that nowhere in all of the Old Testament is it so plainly and fully prophesied that Christ ought to suffer and then to enter into his glory as in this chapter, Isaiah 53. So what is John the Baptist doing here? To be honest, the first thought that may have crept into these people's brains is a bit morbid. Look. He's going to die. Look, there's the one. This is who I've been talking about. He's going to suffer for you. They're going to hurt him. They're going to humiliate him. This is the one I've been talking about. And yes, he's going to bless us. It's almost as if he's saying, Behold, here's the one who has come to die. What a morbid thought for just the first chapter. So there is that first reference. Maybe it's a bit dark or maybe it's a bit heavy. The second one maybe is a bit lighter because it references one of the greatest moments that a Jew would know about. It was the exodus, the primo, the climax of the Old Testament for them. This is a reference not just to the lamb who's a suffering servant. This is also a reference to the Passover lamb which we read about in our Old Testament reading this morning. Again, this is a high moment in Judaism. If you're not familiar with the Passover, just a quick reminder, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt not just for a little bit, they were enslaved in Egypt for around 430 years. And then God speaks to Moses in the form of a burning bush and we start to see this back and forth of plagues and Moses is the mouthpiece of God arguing with Pharaoh. And as these things are happening, we are seeing this buildup occur to this climactic moment that's going to be the Passover. And as you've heard in the reading this morning, Moses gets very specific with his instructions you're to slaughter a lamb. You prepare it in a very certain way. And very specifically, you're to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorway. Because depending on how you've heard this described before, the angel of death or the spirit of death was going to come and that he would pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son of every house. Except for the doors that had the blood covering it. And who would those doors be? It would be for the Jews. So. What ends up happening is this plague comes through, and it is the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back. And he does, at least for a moment, let his people go. Let the people of God go. What people might hear is that this Lamb of God is a reference to the powerful work of God that the people of God have already experienced. The way that God, Yahweh Himself, interjected Himself and graciously protected and saved his people. So yes, this is a lamb that is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquity, but he is also the representation of Yahweh that brings immense freedom to his people. It's a dueling message. It can be interpreted pretty powerfully. There's a lot to unpack for this new message for people. Can you imagine if you're walking around and you hear something like that? It would take a little bit of time to figure it out. And this is There's no scholarly stuff behind this, but I would just say, if it's overwhelming to you, it's overwhelming to me. It was also, I think, overwhelming to the people there um, because it takes a whole 24-hour period. Then John sees Jesus again. He goes, I'm just going to run it back. Behold, the Lamb of God. Then two guys are like, oh, I should follow him instead, right? Takes a little bit of time to process what's going on here. So have some grace. Have some grace. with yourself. What's interesting to me is although this is a pretty powerful imagery, I think, between the suffering sermon This Passover lamb, um, our author John actually adds something to it. It doesn't say, just behold the lamb of God. He goes on, this lamb of God takes away the sin, takes away sin. What he is saying here is adding this new phrase this lamb of God that's being identified does something that the Passover lamb simply did not or could not do. This Exodus lamb um, is used to cover up. It's an outward sign, a message that you're not to come in here. It's a posture of defensiveness. This lamb takes a different approach. By my reading, this lamb is doing something much greater. Instead of just protecting, he's actually actively taking away. Instead of going on defense, it seems that this lamb of God is on offense. This Lamb of God, this Jesus of Nazareth that John the Baptist is pointing to is not just covering up sin. This Jesus is taking it away. This Lamb of God gets his hands dirty and he takes away that sin entirely. He does not overlook it. He actually eliminates it. This Lamb does not present people before God covered up. This Lamb does a purifying work and he actually presents you not as one who looks righteous if you're a following of Jesus Christ, but one who is actually righteous. Friends, we would do well to remember that the work that Jesus Christ does to make us truly clean from our sins, he does not just cover you up. Because of who Jesus Christ is, a day is coming, and because who he is and the bloodshed of him as the Lamb of God who takes away sin, a day is coming that you, and I are going to sit before the judgment seat of God Almighty, if you are in Christ, and you will be deemed not as one who looks righteous, as one who is righteous. That is remarkable. And you and I are both keenly aware of the fact that we do not deserve that. And it is not because Jesus has pulled a fast one in God or put blinders on him. It is because the blood that Jesus Christ will go on to spill is enough, not just to cover you up, it's actually enough to make you pure from your sin. There are a couple other passages where other writers in the New Testament are going to reference this. This is the same author for this first one, but in 1 John 1:9, 1, it says this: if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not to cover you up. John 8:34 through 36 says this: truly, truly, I tell you. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Watch this. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Lamb of God doesn't just make you look free. He actually sets you free. Paul's going to talk about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, and how Jesus has actually done a powerful work of reconciling us to God Almighty. In verse 17, he says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's done away with. Behold, the new has come. Jesus does not come to make you look new. He actually comes to make you new. And finally, Old Testament reference in Psalm 103, this is in verse 12, David's writing. Yeah, this is before Christ, but it's about him. It says this, as far as the east is from the west, I'm gonna finish the statement a second, but I'm gonna take a quick time out. If you are not somebody who's into geography, I'm just gonna have you know this. I was in school, would see a map, would hear this verse, and there's a little compass rose at the bottom, and I would say the E and the W are relatively close together. I think you could fit them in South Carolina, which is where I'm from. I hope that I don't have to make an argument this morning that the world is round. If you go east, you will continue to go east infinitely. You will never find west. If you go west, you will continue to go west infinitely. You will never find east. They are as far apart as anything could possibly be. So in that vein, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, or depending on your translation, sin from us. This lamb of God is not the Passover lamb. This lamb of God takes away sin. And here is just something I've seen in my limited ministry experience. It's a bit odd. There are a lot of people who prefer the Passover lamb to the lamb of God. There are many people who would prefer a quick fix or a band-aid rather than to face Jesus Christ and take on the purifying work that he's actually interested in doing in our lives. I've seen many people who would rather just move through the next thing, just slap a Band-Aid on something. Following Jesus and walking with him and in his ways, the ways that he talks about, it is not easy to do. And if somebody has told you that it is easy or if somebody has told you that it's just going to fix your problems and make you feel better, I'm not trying to, I want to be gentle. It's a lie. It is not true. Following Jesus is difficult. However, it is worthwhile because there is no alternative. There is no one else and there is nothing else that is going to satisfy you and make you into the pure person that in the depths of your soul you were designed and want to be. The only one who can turn you into that person is Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God, And walking with Jesus Christ is not something that's done in a microwave. It is not a quick fix. Eugene Peterson wrote a book on discipleship. The title, I think, just references really beautifully. He calls following Jesus a long obedience in the same direction. Friends, I would just throw out here this morning that for some of us in a culture that can pull up a phone and see whatever they want to see, we are very accustomed to quick fixes. I would ask you that in this epiphany season to consider, stop looking for quick solutions and to seek the face of Jesus Christ and the restorative work that he wants to do and to behold this Lamb of God. And if you do, he will take away your sin. Another just piece, there's more to this little statement, right? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away sin. But he actually takes away sin of, of the whole world, right? We hear that idea of, taking away sin. And I do this because I'm born in the West. I live in a culture that is individually based. How am I doing? How can I measure my life? How does this work? Just, I'm not here to comment on our cultural moment. I'm here to say that Jesus Christ, that is not society. that is not the society that he lived in. It's not the way that the people that John the Baptist is identifying, behold, the son of God, they are not thinking of themselves in individual terms. There's no way. He doesn't just take on the sin of individuals. He doesn't just take on the sin of people. He takes on the sin of the world. And that translation in that space, it's, it's a Greek translation. It's not bad that it says world, but the Greek word is actually the word cosmos. You look at the word cosmos, it's, it's really translated today as, as universe. It's not just the planet, it's the universe. Or the way that a first century Jew would probably understand this, phrase, this statement is, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of all of creation. Friends, clearly, it's clear in just this little word, that the work that this Lamb of God is going to do is much bigger than just purifying you and I individually. There's a thought. If you're understanding this morning, if you are tempted to think of the gospel as a message or a person that exclusively involves you as an individual or even exclusively involves just people, I would challenge you that perhaps your understanding of the gospel is not big enough. Please don't mishear me. I am not here to say that Jesus Christ is not concerned with you as an individual. He is. He is so detail focused. He is so welcoming of every individual element of your life. The Bible is very clear. He's kind of the hairs on your head. Some of us have more than those than others. He's knitted you in your mother's womb with intentionality and great great detail but just in the same way that in the fall, it was not just people that were impacted by sin in the earth. So does this son of lamb, not just impact people, but all of creation. John, this author, he doubles down on this idea in the the oncoming chapters. John 3.16 is probably the most memorized verse in the Bible. Honestly, sometimes it makes me cringe to put it in here because it's so everybody just knows it. It's on coffee cups. it's, It's everywhere, right? But the word in there is the same word. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, all of creation. Not people, although people are included. Not you, although you're included. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. In John 4, this is the passage of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a, I would encourage you to go and read that at some point this week. It's very powerful. It's him identifying himself publicly as the Messiah for the very first time. He interacts with this woman. They have a beautiful exchange. She goes back and she starts saying, I have found the one who told me everything I've ever done. And so the people are like, well, I wanna see that. And so they go and they go be with Jesus. When they come back, they give her a report. It's in John four, it's verse 42. This is what it says. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the Savior of the cosmos. This is the Savior of all creation, restoring all things. Can you imagine that? It's it's hard for me, at least, to get in my individual brain. These people, Jesus Christ, is on the earth. They go to see him in person, and their takeaway is not, look what Jesus has just done for me. Their takeaway is, this is the one who's going to restore all things again. Praise God for that. When, when John, this author, uses the word cosmos, right, again, this, this book is designed to be listened to or read throughout. The first thing that we see about all of creation, this idea, is actually earlier in John 1 in this prologue. I'm going to read it to you just briefly. In the beginning was the word. That word means logos. It's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was with God. The word was God. Oh, underline that one. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Perhaps some scholars, people smarter than me, think that perhaps the reason that John Senezevedi, our author, continues to reference in this passage is that he's establishing, referencing cosmos, is to bring them back to this place to remind them of these foundational and important truths, which include that Jesus, the word, he was actually present when the cosmos, when all of creation was made. It says more than that. Jesus was not created. He was there with God. It says more than that. Jesus, or the Word, he wasn't just with God. He himself is God, and that as God, he therefore is the creator of all that creation, of that cosmos. I don't want to show you guys behind the veil as a, stir, like as a staff guy here at the Anglican Church. But we're trying to remind you of this. In a few minutes, we're gonna recite the Nicene Creed. It says very similar language to remind you of these truths. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's begotten, not made. He's of one being with the Father. And through him, all things were made. Simply put, I say all this to say this. Unlike the Passover lamb, this lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is not an agent of God. This lamb of God that has come into the world is God himself. He is restoring the thing that he himself created. The one who created all of this universe is the one who has come into the earth and he is the one that is faithful and just to redeem all things of that very same creation. So John the Baptist, this moment, he sees Jesus. He looks at him, he says, "The Lamb of God, the suffering servant, that's of the lamb." He takes away the sins of the world. There's a lot in just this one sentence. And I hope that some of these truths and these revelation about Jesus in line with what we're trying to do here in, in Epiphany, um, I hope that you can take some of these away with you, that Jesus Christ is the one who's going to suffer. He is going to be pierced for our transgressions. He is the man of sorrows. But at the same time, he is the one who's bringing freedom to his people just as Yahweh did to his people in the Exodus. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus is greater. This lamb of God is greater than that Passover lamb. He is actively taking away sin, not covering them up. That a day is coming that he is going to present us before God Almighty, not as those who look redeemed. But as those who are truly redeemed, as far as the East is from the West. And that Jesus is himself God. And as God, he is actually redeeming all things back to himself. So it's a lot. There's a lot of information here. I, I just would close with a bit of application. What are we to do with this? What's our role in this look like? There's a lot of avenues you could take it. I would start just perhaps we should take John the Baptist's advice. Behold, look at him. Look through your Bible and look at the characteristics of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the most joyful. He is the most kind. He fits every need. There is no one that you will find that is like him. Marvel at him. Do You have space in your life to actually pause and allow yourself to be amazed by God Almighty. Not because of what he can do for you, just because of who he is. In my personal experience, it's really difficult to be down in the dumps when you are in awe of Jesus Christ. While other, a couple quotes from people that are smarter that I think agree with me on this. Charles Spurgeon said this, while others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. C.S. Lewis, he said this, look for Christ, look at Christ, and you'll find him, and with him, everything else is thrown in. And then, the, I love, this is my favorite of, of the three that I have. This is N.T. Wright, he says this, if you have never felt or known the sheer power and strength of God's love, take another look at Jesus. Friends, I would encourage you this week in the season of Epiphany to make some time. Not, and I'm sure that a lot of us have spiritual practices and disciplines that we are with God and and it's good. We want to take our problems to God. We want to take the good things to God. We want to thank him and ask him. All those are good things. I would just encourage you to maybe make a little caveat, not to ask anything of him, but just to behold him. This lamb of God who takes away sins. So may you, Church of the Redeemer this week, Behold, and I mean really behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, that takes away the sin, not just for us, but the sin of the whole world. Amen. Would you please um, stand and let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and was made man.